Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Another big story we continue to follow is how the coronavirus has upended the U.S. food system. It was always a delicate balance of demand from consumers at grocery stores and restaurants and the supply chain from farmers and food processors. But illnesses, shutdowns, and stay-at-home orders changed everything. Farmers had crops spoiled without any buyers. Meat processors closed due to outbreaks. Distributors lost 60 to 90 percent of their business volume. And food banks who relied on grocery stores and restaurants are struggling as that need has surged. For more on this chaotic food system, we spoke to Kevin Rector, reporter at the LA Times. There's really no sector in the U.S. food system that hasn't been struck by this. A lot of those sectors work sort of hand-in-hand with one another. They have sort of stood up, or they have stood up, these very complex, precise supply chains for serving the residents of the state in the ways that they were accustomed to eating and dining out and things like that. But like you mentioned, when the governor sort of asked that all the restaurants closed down, it totally shattered a lot of that system and forced people to find new ways to match the supply of food with the demand. One of the biggest changes right out of the gate at that point was the food service sector, which supplies not only restaurants, but schools and hotels, et cetera, with a ton of food, totally shut down. Some distributors lost 90% of their business overnight. It did depend on what sort of diversification they had among their customers. So some providers for a lot of fast food restaurants and things like that, that kept on with their drive-through and carry-out options, maintained a larger percentage of their business. But a lot of the industry was just decimated. At the same time, grocery store demand shot up. As everyone knows, a lot more people were flowing into grocery stores, particularly in the beginning there. There was a lot of hoarding going on, essentially people stockpiling food, based in part on their uncertainty as to whether or not it would remain available. I think some of that was due to earlier signs that people were seeing that supplies of other things like toilet paper and paper products weren't necessarily on the shelves. And then it was sort of a vicious cycle. So yeah, it started that way and it's rippled out into a lot of other portions of the system. And that's a huge part of it, that the retail demand went up as people were trying to stockpile very early on. It's like, hey, you got to be quarantined for two weeks. So people were trying to buy enough food for those two weeks and longer if they had to. And while that demand went up, the demand on the restaurant side went down. But that rise in the retail demand was not enough to offset what was being lost on the restaurant side. And farmers were hit especially hard too with a bunch of their crops went rotten and they had to kind of restart all over again when the restaurants weren't buying up the bulk of that food. And even still now for them is, I have to imagine as tough as restaurants are going to start reopening, it's still unclear what the demand is going to be. Even if a restaurant opens up, I'm sure they're not going to be at capacity right away. They're limiting how many people are going to be in there. So for farmers, it's a tough game right now on matching that demand. One thing I heard from almost everyone I talked to is that this was not just 
the market was one way one day and then it was a different way the next day and everyone could start sort of getting in shape and getting in line for the new way the markets worked. It was just that every day, day after day, the markets were changing and supply was changing and demand was changing such that they've been on this whirlwind roller coaster of logistical gymnastics day after day, trying to figure out what they can do to sort of shore up their bottom line and also make sure that food supply doesn't go to waste. So before the pandemic, there was this elaborate system by which grocery stores would sort of kick out excess produce and product to food banks. And then the food banks would supply these sort of local community pantries or soup kitchens or folks who were providing meals to needy residents. But when the world changed, all of those supply chains were disrupted. Groceries were selling more stock off their shelves, and so they had less to provide to the food banks. Here in in California, in Hollywood, the Hollywood Food Coalition, which has for 33 years served hot meals to folks on the street each night, they received a lot of food from studio productions, television and movies. They could feed hundreds of people a night just based on leftover food. All of that shut down. So suddenly they didn't have that product. And at the same time, like you said, a lot of the farmers suddenly had a ton of produce that they were having in the the old world gobbled up each day by restaurants, no longer having a market. And I talked to one lettuce grower who said they're considering shifting what they grow to grow more iceberg and romaine, which is what grocery store buyers purchase, and less of the sort of boutique leaves that chefs use in fancy salads. So it was an array of disruptions that all hit at once. And like you mentioned, some restaurants are coming back online or learning how to do delivery or working with the apps that people are using more and more. And so the demand on the food service sector hasn't just dropped off a cliff and then stayed there forever. It's, it's climbing back up. I think it's shifting on a day-to-day basis. So people are having to evolve. Going back real briefly to what you mentioned about the food banks, I made a note on my article here on the notes uh, and I just simply wrote, wow, I didn't know that a single day of production on a film or TV set could have enough leftover meals for hundreds of people on any given day. That's crazy. And and as you say, you know, things shut down almost immediately. That's all those people are left without nothing. You know, in the first three weeks of April, there was nearly 265,000 people that applied for government food assistance under the CalFresh program. Food banks were seeing thousands of people in increase that needed food. So it's very tough out there. And one of the ones that we've been hearing a lot when we hear about the food supply chain is in danger are meat processors. We've seen a bunch of plants close down due to coronavirus outbreaks, people there getting sick, and they've had to change a bunch of stuff in their processing plants to accommodate that. Just as there was sort of increasing demand on processors, including as some processing facilities were shut down because of outbreaks, there was this added need to better space out employees. So you were looking at increased demand at the same time you were looking at the need to have fewer employees on a production line or things like that. So a lot of meat processors have sort of scrambled to reshape how they operate and in order to meet higher demand for packaged meats and groceries, but at the same time, keep their frontline workers 
safe. And that's part of this picture. It hasn't always gone that way for either meat processors or for grocery stores. We are seeing employees in the food sector falling sick, and there's pushback from unions and other advocates for these workers to say that the companies who employ them need to be doing more to ensure their safety. And that does take careful consideration. It's another logistical hurdle that these companies are dealing with, just as they are dealing with all of these other logistical hurdles in terms of matching supply with demand. I mean, it's tough to predict when something like this will happen and upend the entire food system, but it really just shows us how delicate the balance is and and how one little thing affects everything else. You know, looking to the future, we're going to have to see what type of new system maybe we can implement that compare, you know, people and some of these institutions that need the food with those that have the food supply. So, I mean, hopefully we can get this under wraps, but for now, it's just a chaotic thing right now. And no end in sight, really, until things get back to normal, if they ever do. So we'll have to keep an eye out for all of that. Kevin Rector, reporter at the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally, for this week, we'll talk a little bit about Ahmad Arbery. On February 23rd, he was shot and killed in Brunswick, Georgia. While he was out for a jog, he was confronted by Travis and Greg McMichael, and Ahmad was shot twice in the chest with a shotgun. There's been a growing concern that the case has been mishandled by both police and prosecutors. The case is now on its fourth prosecutor, and the Georgia Attorney General has asked the Justice Department for an investigation. It took 74 days for an arrest to be made. For more about this case and about organizing in the time of coronavirus, we'll speak to Tremaine Lee, MSNBC correspondent and host of the Into America podcast. We really don't know more than what we've seen. We don't know exactly what happened right before the shooting, but from the video, it's troubling and concerning and clear that Ahmaud Arbery ran into this father and son duo, now charged with murder. And there's a lot of speculation around whether he was, in fact, a quote-unquote jogger or was he a quote-unquote burglar. There is no evidence to indicate that Ahmaud Arbery was involved in any kind of criminal activity leading up to the moments when he was shot and killed by the uh, McMichaels. As of right now, what we see is what we get. I mean, I think what's troubling to a lot of people is that it took 74 days for any arrest, for anything to happen. But there's also another series of events playing in the background. We're now on our fourth prosecutor, our fourth prosecutor in this case. And so the first prosecutor who said that he believed that the McMichaels were acting legally and justified in the shooting because they say they were trying to make a citizen's arrest. And then once Arbery they say attack them, then they were standing their ground. They had a legal self-defense motivation. But he had to recuse himself because he was an old friend of one of the shooters involved in the case. Then you had a second prosecutor who also had a relationship with the elder McMichaels, who served as a police officer for 30 years. Then you had your third prosecutor. And then just earlier this week, the Georgia attorney general appointed a fourth prosecutor. And so this police department is now under heightened security. Uh, heightened scrutiny, I should say. There has been this long history, uh, apparently, of cover-ups, some other scandals involving various police issues and cover-ups. And so right now we're kind of just at the tip of the iceberg because it's been 74 days between the actual shooting and the arrest. And here we are still trying to put together the pieces. And in the meantime, the attorney general is also launching an investigation into the handling of the case from those prior two prosecutors, the first two. So this is a mess, Oscar. It really does seem so. And I guess, you know, as we're going through this coronavirus pandemic, it really shouldn't excuse 
some of these missteps and just kind of how long this has taken to be looked into. You were talking about some of these prosecutors who had to recuse themselves. He's the circuit district attorney, George Barnhill. On his way out, he even said, you know, as you mentioned, that the McMichaels were totally within their right. They had solid firsthand probable cause as civilians to detain him. Did they ever contact law enforcement when they were following him? Did they do that before? Were they going to try to capture him first and then call the cops? How did that play out? According to reporting, there had been a number of 911 calls made to the police before the shooting. And from the transcripts of the call, you hear the person receiving the call saying, the dispatcher saying, but what crime is being committed? What is happening? And you hear there's a black man running through the neighborhood. So part of the thing seems to be, uh, and as I get to with Reverend Al Sharpton on the podcast, this long history of vigilantism and the criminalization of black people, but black men in particular. So when they're already arriving at this moment with the perception that this man is a criminal, that this man is a burglar, but even if there is other video of what appears to be um, Ahmaud Arbery walking into this home under construction, even from what we've seen, there doesn't appear to be any crime that's been committed. Certainly not right. a felony, certainly not one that warrants the death penalty. And we've seen this play out time and again, where whether it's Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, and a bunch of names that the public has never heard of. A lot of times, especially when it's either the community, law enforcement, the suspects, you start developing a defense for the shooters already. So this must have been a criminal. There are some other video that doesn't even appear to me and I'm not a lawyer, I'm just a journalist covering this stuff, to be Ahmad Arbery. They look to be some other gentleman, but they're already posing this thing that don't call him a jagger. He was up to no good. And so trying to pick through all of this, either way, we end up with a young man dead who most would say wouldn't have deserved to be dead even if he had been trespassing. One of the defense for the McMichaels is that they were trying to do a citizen's arrest. How does the citizen's arrest law work in Georgia? From my understanding, the law states that a private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. And just even with how they have presented all of this, that didn't really seem to be the case. You're missing a number of key points in there, right? They, they, what they're missing is it wasn't in their presence because there was no crime apparently being committed or in their proximity. So from the very beginning, supporters of the Arbery family and critics would say that you don't have a legal, any legal ground to stand on. But the first prosecutor said that they actually do. The second prosecutor said the same thing. So the legal waters have already been muddy from the very beginning. So now there are calls for the Department of Justice to investigate this case. You have the state attorney general calling for an investigation into the handling of this case from the beginning. Because again, by the letter of the law, they're missing a number of those points. For the podcast Into America, you did speak to the Reverend Al Sharpton for his thoughts on how this is all playing out. The first question with regards to your conversation to him, how does the black community feel when something like this happens again, when we do have video evidence showing the altercation. Obviously, we don't have a full picture of what happened before, but how does the black community respond to something like this? It's hard to say the black community, right? But we say collectively, black folks have experienced a lot of pain and trauma, not only at the hands of law enforcement, but also neighbors and vigilantes and folks going way back, as the Reverend Al Sharpton makes note of, from the original slave patrols where folks were deputized and there was a responsibility. If you saw someone who you even perceived to be a runaway, that you apprehend them. So to see young black men, especially, it happens to black men and black women, but certainly to black men, we've seen the bodies, we've seen the bloodshed and that collective pain, that weight, it's almost as if 
how much is going to be too much? When is enough going to be enough? But there's also part of the conversation is this idea of allyship in moments like this. And justice will play out how it will play out, right? It will go through the court system. The prosecution will be what it is. And we'll see how the chips fall. But in, in the big picture of allyship, and you see the big 10 of the Democratic Party and black folks are the base of that. You think about the LGBTQ community, which enjoys some intersectionality. You think about the feminist movement, which enjoys, again, some intersectionality in terms of race and gender. But when it comes to these shootings, it almost seems like the black community is left to fend for itself and fight alone, whether because people often don't believe the people who are presumed to be suspects or whoever they are, the victims, they believe that maybe they were doing something wrong or just can't understand how they ended up dead if they weren't doing something wrong. And I think there's a presumption here, even from folks who see themselves as being on the right side of the justice conversation and the right side of the equality conversation. There's always that other thing there, which has been baked into our American conscience and threaded through every aspect of life. And that's the criminality of black people. And so I think if there is any voicing of a collective, it's that folks are weary. 2019 celebrated the 400th anniversary uh, of 1619 when the first enslaved Africans were brought to these shores and were still tangled in the mess created by all that, right? And there are no accidents. And so I think it's, it's troubling. And then usually it manifests in some sort of public protest and organizing around putting pressure on individuals or institutions, be it politically or, or the police and law enforcement institutions. But how do you protest? How do you movement build during COVID-19, when right. it's unsafe, perhaps unhealthy to gather. And that's what I want you to speak a little bit more about, organizing in the time of coronavirus. This really didn't take off until that video came out. There was no arrest until 74 days after this. And throughout of this, we're experiencing all these stay-at-home orders. People can't really get out. And you can't get that type of media coverage, which unfortunately a lot of the country needs a lot of times to be able to be exposed to something like this. How do you organize during these times? Well, the Reverend Al Sharpton, again, who is a veteran organizer and has been doing this stuff for a very long time, said that, you know, organizers just have to be nimble and you have to be creative and you have to take that pressure online. And so where in, in years past and times past, you might have dozens or hundreds of bodies in the street marching along outside the governor's office. You have to turn online. And he made, he made one point. He said, you know, during the fallout from the killing of Trayvon Martin. He said they organized the protest, which is a big protest of 10,000 people. Just last week, they held an online forum with some of the attorneys involved in the Arbery Crick case and others, and they had 100,000 people tune in, 100,000. And so while you won't have the traditional protest organized in the streets, you can organize them the quarters of the internet and online and push it that way and use social media. So now you don't have the feet marching, but you can still put pressure by organizing online. And they have no choice now. It was already building in recent years, but now because of COVID-19, they have no choice but to push in that direction. Well, there's still a lot yet to be seen in this case. The prosecution won't be able to present evidence to a grand jury until the state Supreme Court's uh, coronavirus restrictions are lifted on June 12th. So there's still going to be a lot happening in the Ahmad Arbery case. Tremaine Lee, MSNBC correspondent and host of the Into America podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.